Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena. And I'm Katie. Today, we will be discussing sections 98 through 105 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And we are members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. An episode that you must read or listen to that recently was posted was Beyond the Block's reaction to Elder Holland's talk at BYU. James Jones, Brother Jones, had a talk in Sacrament Meeting where he responded to the talk, and they posted that on their podcast, and then they also did an entire episode responding to it called What Reading? (laughs) Really, really important to listen to, especially to support our LGBTQ siblings. Yeah, so Elder Holland made a metaphor of defending the institution of marriage as being of a man and woman, or I'm paraphrasing, right? Defending that definition of marriage with a trowel in one hand and a musket in the other. Yeah, he talked about building the kingdom of God, and like he referred to a talk that was given previously that Elder Oaks quoted And it was talking about the saints building the temple with trowels in one hand and muskets in the other. And then the metaphor continued on when he quoted Elder Oaks as saying, I want to hear more musket fire from this institution referring to BYU. And then Elder Holland went into speaking against LGBTQ, the community and their allies. And basically using really violent language in regards to queer people. And reminder that I am a queer person. I'm bi, pan, somewhere in the bi, pan umbrella. And it was, it was already hard enough for me to like see people talk about it so much that I didn't even listen to the whole thing. I like opened his transcript in one tab and then like did a search command F to see what words he used. And that was enough for me. And that was already overwhelming and affected my appetite and my ability to walk and everything and my mood. Anyway, we made a statement on our Instagram. And let me preface this by saying this is highly informed by things I saw and heard and experienced in the state of Utah last summer during Black Lives Matter protests disabled and neurodivergent queer folk in the church do not have the luxury of treating Elder Holland's violent words as a, quote, metaphor. I am poised on the edge of dissociating from dread and anger right now, so I hope this makes sense regardless. First of all, neurodivergent people, especially autistic people, are highly represented in the queer population. In fact, many of us are probably undiagnosed neurodivergence because we found community and solace for our strangeness in the queer community. We take things literally. We take things personally. That's not a fault. That's a brain difference. Secondly, I'm already starting to see posts from far-right extremists on social media advocating to, quote, pick up your musket against LGBTQ folks in the church. Do you know how scary this is for us right now? These people are not joking. These are the same people who ran Black Lives Matter protesters over on Center Street in Provo. I was there who formed a 15,000 plus member militia, militias in quotes, against uh, Black Lives Matter protesters and followed protesters around to various protests all across the state with armed assault rifles. Like, literally, we had people stalking us, showing up outside of our apartments, you know, in their cars with their guns, okay? To be honest, some queer people in Provo who did not engage in Black Lives Matter protests last summer might not be aware of this. Please listen to me now. The racists and the homophobes and the transphobes and the ableists are all the same damn people. They mobilized last summer, they mobilized on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, and as far as I know, have not faced any church discipline because of it. And yes, we have confirmed members of the church who were at the insurrection on January 6th. I don't want people Mm -hmm. to panic, but I want you to make an informed decision about whether or not to show up to Pride events in Utah, especially in Provo. I personally will not attend. I've already faced enough trauma there 
Lastly, for many disabled people, and for me, my disability is tied intricately to my emotions and overall mental state. I am, for all intents and purposes, paralyzed if it gets bad enough. Because of this, I had a minor autistic meltdown in a store because someone was asking me to come to the counter and I couldn't move. And and he kept asking me to come to the counter. And I said, I can't come to the counter. Are you asking me to come right now? And, and he said, well, yes, I said I would help you. And I said, well, you said it would be two minutes. Anyway, it was a whole thing. Uh, now, imagine that level of paralysis in the face of an assault rifle or a musket. Words have consequences. Elder Holland's words are already wrecking havoc on us as neurodivergent, disabled, and generally queer folks. Like, this is not a metaphor to us. This is our very lives. Yeah, and we have to say whether you personally connect it as a metaphor only or not, there will be people who do not think it's a metaphor and will take it literally. And Whatever your opinion of it is, that's a fact. We've seen it time and time again, and it's irresponsible to use violent language against any marginalized community, even if it's metaphorical. Absolutely not. (sighs) Anyway, other fun things happening in the news lately. The Texas abortion ban. Yeah, great. (laughs) There's a lot going on right now, and... We want to encourage everybody to make sure that you're taking care of yourselves. Don't feel like a bad ally or a bad person if you need to take a break from the news for your own mental health. That needs to happen sometimes and you have to make sure you're okay so you can show up for yourself and the people around you in your life. But yeah, do your best to watch out for those around you and to stand up against wrong when you see it happen because there's a lot of wrong happening in the world right now. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get into the Come Follow Me. We'll actually kind of go back to this conversation a little bit in Come Follow Me. I'll just give summaries of the sections really quick. We have a lot of sections here. 98, 101, 103, and 105 are all revelation given after the saints were persecuted. The sections are mostly about repentance and forgiveness, but 103 and 105 go into the history of the saints making a camp of Israel or Zion's camp that was later disbanded by the prophet. 99 talks about John Murdoch being given his mission call. 100 is revelation given to Joseph and Sidney Rigdon about their families after they were concerned for them and they had to leave them to spread the gospel while all these persecutions were happening. Section 102 is the first high council meeting recorded, and they talk about how to deal with some hard things with the church, including how to excommunicate people. And then section 104 is revelation about the United Order and how to help the saints through this time. Okay, so 98. It was really interesting when it spoke about how to forgive people and when is the right time to forgive and what your reward will be like it kind of goes back and forth at some parts verses 23 through 21 hmm okay i just disagree with this approach basically it's saying if someone hurts you or your family once bear it patiently don't seek for revenge if they hurt you again a second time bear it patiently you'll get a better reward. If they hurt you again a third time, bear it patiently, you'll get an even better reward. And then if that person has escaped judgment and they have escaped justice after that point, then like remember it and warn them that they don't hurt you or your family because your children's children will be affected. And if they hurt your children's children, then thine enemy is in thy hands. Oh, but if you spare him again, that will be rewarded unto thy righteousness. But if he's in your hands, uh, verse 31, and if thou rewardest him according to his works, thou art justified. If he has sought thy life and thy life is endangered by him, thine enemy is in thy hands and thou art justified. Basically, it's saying we're not supposed to take justice right away. We're supposed to keep forgiving and forgiving until like multiple infractions have occurred and until like multiple generations have passed and then we're finally justified to get revenge make that make sense that doesn't make sense to me like to me in my head 
get justice as soon as possible. That way it's not affecting your descendants who really didn't do anything wrong. Why would we want to bring more suffering upon more generations of people when you can remedy the injustice right away? Yeah. And it's definitely something that Christ took upon himself when he was on earth as well. Like he saw something wrong and he immediately corrected people. Mm. But we do have to say, if there is some kind of wrong thing that happens to people that affects your family for generations and generations, the scriptures here are testifying of reparations. Like that was a big enough event that it is still affecting people continually today. The scriptures are direct here. Yeah. If the children shall repent or the children's children and turn to the Lord their God with all their hearts and all their might, mind and strength and restore fourfold for all their trespasses wherewith they have trespassed or wherewith their fathers have trespassed or their father's fathers, then thine indignation shall be turned away. Yeah, 100%. It comes right out and, and says that there's an obligation to make reparations. Mm-hmm. But I still am grappling with the tragedy that there needs to be reparations in the first place. Oh, 100%. Instead of the divine stepping in in the moment when people needed them the most. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Lord, if you're going to fight my battles, then actually fight them. Otherwise, I'm going to fight them myself. Like, I'm not about to wait. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll wait if I don't have energy. That's resting. That's different. (laughs) I think it's really important that as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or as Christians in general, that we don't put everything off, put justice off, and say, well, the Lord will enact justice so we don't have to do anything. We don't have to fight for it. Right. Yeah. And in fact, rewinding a little bit, 98 verse 5 and verse 7 Mm. kind of speaks to that. Verse 5 talks about how rights, privileges, and freedom belong to all mankind. And it says, when that happens, the Constitution is justifiable before God. Yeah. Meaning if that doesn't happen, then the Constitution or the laws of the land is not justifiable before God. And then verse 7, it talks about how whatever is more or less than equality, relating back to verse 5, is evil. Mm. Whatever is more or less than equality is evil. Yeah. The clause supporting that principle of freedom and maintaining rights and privileges, that's to explain what the word constitutional means. And so it's saying Mm -hmm. that the Constitution is supposed to support freedom and rights and privileges. And as we know, there are many, many, many amendments to the Constitution. And I feel like it can also become an idol in and of itself where people like worship Mm -hmm. that as a sign of America's greatness and like white supremacy greatness. You know what I mean? And yeah, that's problematic as well. So uh, I just need to name that because these verses are used in that manner. Like when you went to BYU-Idaho, did you have to take American yeah, American history. American history, restoration. It was like this weird mix. Yeah, where it's like yeah. our founding fathers were inspired by God and we're not talking about the fact that they own slaves. Yeah. Ugh. I'm glad that we have a way to interpret these verses that can be progressive and validating for marginalized people. But at the same time, these are some of the words that a lot of people will use against equality. Yeah, it's where Derek says to read the scriptures responsibly. If you read Mm. it and you include the parts where it says that it belongs to all mankind and it's justifiable before God, but is not God, the law is not God, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then we can responsibly look at the laws and verify if they're of God or not, honestly. Well, let's jump over to section 99. This is a section given to from the prophet to John Murdoch, and it's him being called to teach the gospel. And I thought this part was really cool. He's called to proclaim the gospel in the midst of persecution, that he will be given power and those that receive the gospel will be blessed. And I thought about how even though it's really, really hard to be intersectional and stand up for the right when you're being persecuted, it's important that you keep doing that. When you're looking out for God's people, you will be given power and you will bless people around you as you work hard through persecution to do it. Oh, I really like that. 
yeah, I think that's true. Like how we can feel caught up in like our own persecution. And sometimes that can prevent us from noticing larger injustices or just injustices that aren't directed at us, you know? Mm, So mm -hmm. I really like how you brought that in and encouraged people to continue on and fighting for justice despite the persecution that you're feeling. And that's something that I need to figure out how to incorporate into my life in a sustainable way. Yeah, we have to have a healthy balance. If you go extreme either way, then you're not going to be effective for your own life or Mm -hmm. for what you're trying to do, your purpose in fighting for the right. Don't run faster than you have strength, but also you keep going during persecution. Don't let that turn you against what you're doing if you're doing Mm -hmm. the right thing. Kind of like how Derek and James talked about Holland's reaction in his talk to all of this Mm. shows that the work that people are doing allies and the LGBTQ community are getting to the brother and they're hearing us, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So section 100 verse 15. I feel like this section was so good. It was talking about like, have faith, take action, share the gospel, help people. Your testimony will be confirmed with the spirit and the Lord will be there with you. It was like really powerful and really great. And then verse 15 kind of brings it home at the end of the section with an ableist metaphor. And I'm like, no. (laughs) Verse 15 says, therefore, let your hearts be comforted for all things shall work together for good to them that walk uprightly to the sanctification of the church. And when you look at the footnotes for verse 15, it refers you to Romans 8, 28, mm-hmm. which is the non-ableist way to restate this mm. verse. I feel like a lot of people, when I point out ableism, ableist metaphors in the scriptures, they're like, well, how would you say it instead? And it's like, oh, well, here's a direct example. You could have just said, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's simple. Like, (laughs) we can be inclusive in our language and not rate bodies and their effectiveness and compare it to your effectiveness as a saint or as a called person of God or whatever. I like how you brought that in with an example. I thought it might be good to bring back what we said, I guess, oh my gosh, it was like six months ago. Can you believe that, Katie? (laughs) Look at us. episode was like more than six months ago and we talked about metaphors in it so you can go back and listen to the whole thing or I'm just going to read a little bit of an excerpt from it you said yourself during that episode that metaphors are used throughout the scriptures the purpose of a metaphor is to connect something that is known to something that is unknown and that's used throughout the scriptures shouldn't the metaphors include aspects that everyone on earth can relate to If it doesn't, then what is this metaphor to us? Like it excludes us in a way, right? And then I quoted a blog post called Ableist Metaphors in Worship and Why It Matters by Teresa Soto, a Unitarian Universalist minister in Michigan and Oregon. And they said, every time the disabled body is used as a source of metaphor for being less being broken or being wrong, that metaphor violates three principles, which is preserving the experience of people but seeking to know more, preserving the boundaries between self and other, and three, does not seek to assimilate or obliterate the lived experiences of people. Part of using metaphors skillfully is being accountable. Mashing everything together isn't the best approach. It's a way to obliterate or assimilate the stories of those voices at the margins. Yeah, this is something that will continue to come up in almost every episode. (laughs) And it's honestly like the same ones. Not every time, but I feel like I've seen the whole walk uprightly thing for like two months now. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I can't walk uprightly. Can't run and not be wary. Anyway, yeah, this is a broken record, except people are still doing it. So I feel like it has to be repeated. But then I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm being repetitive. I don't know. I'm like trying to talk to the scriptures, like yelling into the scriptures, use a different metaphor, but like just words on a page. Anyway, I'll just say this. Okay. So that I feel like I'm not talking into a void. Find ways to work on this when you're like talking at church, you know, when you're giving a talk at the pulpit, when you're teaching Sunday school or Relief Society or Elders Quorum or the primary or, or young men or young women's. Ooh, they should have young NBs. That'd be cute. Um, anyway. Oh, 
<laughs> that would be cute. It would be really cute. And really important. Yes. Uh, was not the point of what I was saying, but <laughs> yes. Anyway, point is when you're talking about these things, if you see something in the scriptures that you realize it's talking about bodies or disabled people in a way that is associating disabled or broken bodies with bad things, then just change it. Do a little bit of extra work. Find a different scripture to use or or put in your own words. Paraphrase it to make it more inclusive because you never know who's listening. You never know who's going to develop a disability later on and will remember your lesson or who already has a disability that you don't know about. Or who's being reaffirmed in their ableist concepts when they hear ableist metaphors unconsciously, you know? Yeah, that's also very true. And it's just like, if we can substitute pronouns, you know, and say heavenly parents or humankind, humanity, instead of like all masculine languages for holy things, then you can also do this with disability, you know? Yeah, and that's something I need to work on too. And that's a good point. Remember, people, it's not just intersectional people that change pronouns in scriptures. We hear this all the time when masculinity is used in the scriptures. People say, oh, and this applies to women too. Yeah, We even hear that in general conference from the brethren. They do it too, where they say men and women when the scriptures actually just say men. So yeah, we should do it to be intersectional. And that includes changing the scriptures, editing it, phrasing it to apply better to all people, men and women, humankind, or doing it for disability, changing the language of these ableist verses, or finding a verse that's not ableist. I mean, this one was easy. It was just in the footnote right there. And how long did it take you to find that footnote? Oh, I mean, seconds. Exactly. See, this is not like a, I mean, some of them won't have footnotes, but you might as well try, you know, and it won't take that long. Yeah. And other scriptures are there, you know, you know, this would actually be a good plug-in for us to have, like, uh, our disability scripture mastery. <laughs> oh, yes. We really need to do that. That would be so fun. Uh, that's a lot of work, but it would be really good. Okay, one more thing in section 100. Verse 7 says, A commandment I give unto you, that ye shall declare whatsoever thing ye declare in my name, in solemnity of heart, and in the spirit of meekness in all things. actually really like this, but also... I realize it could be used the wrong way. Hmm. I feel like solemnity of heart resonates with me autistically because I feel like so many times in church people say things and don't think about the implications or don't take it seriously. And I'm like sitting there like, why am I the only one upset about this? Why am I the one taking it personally? Why am I the only one who is, quote, solemn or sober? And everybody else is like Mm. treating it lightly, you know, like, are they not taking it seriously? Quote, taking it literally, right? So this is a very autistic thing, in my opinion. And so I really like that, that we should be taking holy things seriously and saying things like sincerely because it's saying whatsoever thing you declare in my name declare it in solemnity of heart so say things heartfelt and be authentic and sincere and i really really like that mm-hmm. <laughs> then it says the spirit of meekness and i don't like that <laughs> and i feel like this is where uh i got tripped up as a kid too because like i don't know was i meek as a child katie <laughs> Uh, are any of us, Serena? (laughs) Yeah, like confrontational, assertive, words that are the opposite of meek is what my (laughs) high school crush's very own father, who I barely interacted with at all, was like calling me, you know? So you can tell I came off that way if like some random ass man that I barely know is saying, wow, you're kind of, kind of in my face, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um, but like, yeah, so the meekness thing, (sighs) autistic people, I don't want to like homogenize us, but at the same time, there is a tendency that we have to say things like as a matter of fact, or because we might not understand the social rules in a situation. Like we might not understand that something is not supposed to be said in that situation because it's impolite or we Mm. don't support 
or buy into that like social construct, we just say things in a matter of fact way. And people will be like, wow, why are you being so rude? Or why are you being so arrogant? Or like, that's not very humble of you. And that's like the opposite of meekness, right? So I think that that can sometimes be weaponized against neurodivergent people just by virtue of us being us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting when it says in solemnity of heart, you read that as internal. And then when it says in the spirit of meekness, you read that as external, Mm. meaning like the way that you know someone is solemn in heart, you can't, that's internal. But spirit of meekness, meekness is an outward action Mm -hmm. and you'd be able to tell from a person like – I think that this verse could still work for neurodivergent people if it's left up to how they process things internally. Neurodivergent people can be both Solomon heart and move forward in the spirit of meekness, but their actions outwardly in a neurotypical world are often perceived as not meek, not appropriate in whatever way, you know? That's a good point. Anyway, that was my thing about that, and that's all I have for section 100. Okay, so 101, let's go back to the concept of how God constructs laws of the land and what is an appropriate law of the land and what's not an appropriate law of the land. Verse 78 through 80. Mm -hmm, So 78, that every person may act in doctrine and principle pertaining to futurity, meaning speaking to the future. According to the moral agency which I have given unto them, that every person may be accountable for their own sins in the day of judgment. So this is saying every person has moral agency. 79, therefore it is not right that any person may be in bondage one to another. Mm -hmm. And for this purpose have I established the constitution of this land. So any law that puts one person in bondage to another person is not right before God. Well, I think we should talk about slavery here real quick because I don't want people to think that we're ignoring this because this is this section. The saints who had gathered in Missouri were suffering great persecution. Mobs had driven them from their homes in Jackson County, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of the reason that members of the church were persecuted or driven out is because Missouri was a slave state and the members of the church were influencing elections and stuff and were against slavery. So this is from Church History Topics, Slavery and Abolition. Slavery was gradually abolished in the northern states in the late 1700s and early 1800s, including the early Latter-day Saint centers of New York and Ohio. In the southern states, including Missouri, slavery and the domestic slave trade continued. Though most early Latter-day Saint converts were from the northern states and were opposed to slavery, slavery affected church history in a number of ways. In 1832, Latter-day Saints who had settled in Missouri were attacked by their neighbors who accused them of tampering with slaves and endeavoring to sow dissensions and race seditions among them. That winter, Joseph Smith received a revelation that a war would begin over the slave question and that slaves would, quote, rise up against their masters. The next year, concerns that free black saints would gather to Missouri was the spark that ignited further violence against the saints and led to their expulsion from Jackson County, which is what we're talking about in Doctrine and Covenants 101. Yeah. And then in the mid-1830s, I don't want to gloss over this, the saints tried to distance themselves from the controversy over slavery, which, gee, that sounds familiar. Missionaries were (laughs) instructed not to teach enslaved men and women without the permission of their masters. The church's newspaper published several articles critical of the growing abolitionist movement. Okay, and remember, y'all, this is not anti-Mormon stuff. This is from churchofjesuschrist.org. After the saints had been driven from Missouri and had settled in Illinois, however, Joseph Smith gradually became more outspoken in his opposition to slavery. He asked how the United States could claim that, quote, all men are created equal while two or three millions of people are held as slaves for life because the spirit in them is covered with a darker skin than ours. Basically, yes, it was relevant, but it seems like the church was still trying to be like middle of the line about it instead of just right away being like, no, we're abolitionists. Mm -hmm. And then there's a link to another church history topics article called Jackson County Violence. 
Yes, the Latter-day Saints in Missouri brought with them peculiar religious beliefs, including a belief in continuing revelation, spiritual gifts, and the idea that God had promised the land around independence to them as an inheritance, which is problematic in its own way. In addition, many of the saints were from northern states where slavery was illegal or being phased out, while most of the non-Mormons were from the south. Missourians feared that the increasing number of saints would soon dominate the country politically and economically. The saints' most outspoken opponents were civic and religious leaders who wanted to expel church members from the county. A July article in the Latter-day Saint newspaper, The Evening and the Morning Star, stoked Missourians' fears about abolitionism. The editorial, meaning the article, discussed the legal obstacles relating to the migration of free black converts to Missouri, a slave state. Many locals felt the editorial, and by extension the church, intended to encourage these migrations. On July 20th, and then when is this section given? December? Okay. On July 20th, a group of vigilantes demanded that the saints leave Jackson County, and when church leaders refused, the vigilantes attacked the church's printing office, throwing the press out the window, scattering the type in the street, and tearing down the walls of the printing office. Like, okay, I've heard about this, about the printing office thing, but I didn't even realize... That it was connected to the fact that the church had published something about wanting to help black converts migrate to Missouri. Like, holy crap. Interesting how some details don't get talked about at church. Racism is not only like, yes, it's embedded within our church history. Like, we have been racist, right? But also our whole identity of like, oh, we're persecuted for being members of the church in Missouri. A lot of it was because of racism in and of itself. And we don't talk about that. We should be using that as a reason to support Black Lives Matter and to support reparations and to be against American imperialism. But instead, we just hold on to this narrative of us being persecuted without remembering we were persecuted because we were trying to be allies. Wow. Oh, my gosh. (sighs) Do you think that that was intentionally forgotten or Mm. not spoken about? Or do you think that it was just like white people are leading the church? People felt like we moved on from racism as a country, even though it's still alive today. And it just kind of left our history books in how we teach these sections. Yeah, I, I, um, I guess that's supposing. I mean, yeah, I can't say anything definitively, but I definitely feel like it's a white people problem. Yeah. (laughs) To very quickly forget that you were an ally at one point. That this is our history. Yeah. Yeah, And that this is part of our history. And even in this article, it said that the church at one point was trying to be like middle of the ground, you know, and tried to distance itself from the issue of abolitionism. Mm. You could view that as deliberate. Yeah. So maybe that's the attitude that continued on. Like, Mm. we need to stay out of this. It's not our business, even though there's black members of the church. (laughs) Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's confusing to me because it's like, what, it took me three clicks to find this information? I don't know. Like, are the people who are writing these manuals, like, really this ill-versed in navigating the internet? You know? Like, I don't know. I just, mm, to me, it feels like the information is is so easy to find that it's not about the information being there or not. It's about the mindsets that prevent us from going to look for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Wow. I keep going to Elder Holland's talk in my mind when we're talking about this. Like it kind of goes to how Elder Holland was like, Matt Easton, he spoke for himself and his community, but that doesn't represent everyone in the room. And that doesn't make sense for him to speak for everyone. And it's like, the marginalized people are a part of us. Like, mm-hmm. this is a worldwide church. Like, of course it represents us, you like, know? Like, bro, you don't represent us. You're an old cis-het white man. You don't represent all of us either. Like, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so mad about that. Yeah. We are going to take a quick break, but while we're gone, we will share a short message with you from our friends over at Dialogue Journal. Mom had the loudest voice and strongest opinions in the household. It's impossible to feel the spirit in these episodes. From there, it was the grim weeper. 
How could you have done this to me, to us? That may sound blasphemous, but it's true. She was determined and committed to her sometimes eccentric opinions. Meanwhile, I'm wondering who's this wonderful fairy tale us he's talking about. Most of my mixed state experiences are channeled into a prayer to my Heavenly Father to please send help. Please take me out of this. Please show me a sign that you still love me. No, of course not. That's why I'm here. I'm willing to do whatever to make things right. This is Dialogue Out Loud, a curated selection of fiction and essays from the pages of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, brought to life through voice and music. I feel entirely alone in a permanent night, blocked from sunlight by the wall of earth that is my chemical imbalance. My parents were persuaded that this was not just an adolescent whim and allowed me to be baptized three days shy of my 19th birthday. Oh, he'll hold my hand in sacrament meeting and take me by the arm and open the car door and do all that chivalrous Sir Walter Raleigh stuff in public. But safe at home, I'm invisible. This year, we're bringing you even more great audio stories from our quarterly journal, including pieces by Neil David Sylvester, Linda Hoffman Kimball, Monica Crowfoot, and more. Subscribe to the Dialogue podcast to keep up on our latest episodes or go to dialoguejournal.com for this and more great audio content. That's dialoguejournal.com. And we're back here on Holy Human. We're still in section 101. We're now going to look at verse 37. So verse 37 says, Therefore care not for the body, neither the life of the body, but care for the soul and for the life of the soul. I know that in earlier sections we defined the soul as the spirit and the body intertwined, but I still don't think that that definition is ubiquitous enough, widespread enough for people to interpret it that way. I think it's still really easy to interpret this as like only care about your spiritual life and forget about your body. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that can be a hard thing for disabled people, especially that people say to disabled people like and against other marginalized people who are in like maybe bad living situations, you know, by saying, oh, maybe your body sucks. Maybe you're in pain or maybe you don't have enough food or maybe you can't take a bath once a week, but at least you're saved. At least you have the gospel. So you should focus on that and just be grateful. Count your blessings. That's troublesome to me. Yeah. That definition hasn't really come into our culture for some reason, even though it's right Mm -hmm. here in the scriptures. So yeah, I think that's totally fair to say. Yeah. Because if we're talking about the soul as the body and the spirit, then yes, I love this verse. I advocate for it. Like care for your body and your spirit together. Make sure they're in harmony. I think that's amazing, but it doesn't specify that. And I just don't want people to think that that means you can forget about your body. I want people to remember that their body is part of their soul and to be loving and gentle towards it because that's part of who you are. Sometimes we have really complicated, hard relationships with our bodies, which we already have enough body hating going around in the church and throughout Christian history. Like, I want to be really clear that I want people to use this verse in a way that keeps the body in mind. Yeah, thank you. Okay, verse 95 is talking about the work of the gospel. Zion, in verse 95, it's saying, Do all these things that I may proceed to bring to pass my act, my strange act, and perform my work, my strange work, that men may discern between the righteous and the wicked, saith your God. Not a perfect verse. I don't like the gendered language, but I do like the fact (laughs) that it talks about the gospel as a strange act, a strange work. And I think that can be really affirming for neuroqueer people because a lot of times we are referred to as strange or weird. I think this gives more credence to the whole thing that Blair Osler talks about in their book, Queer Mormon Theology, that the church itself has a lot of queerness embedded into it. And I would say a lot of neurodivergence embedded into it. And then like verses 40 through like 66 is a bunch of really violent ways to treat people who like have lost their faith or who are wicked. And I don't like the way it talks about it there. So I'm just going to say that. Hmm. 
Anyway, issues with authority in verse 42, scare tactics against unworthy believers in verse 66, talking about burning us like tares, trotting on people who have lost their way because that's all that they're good for in verse 40. Great. More things just like Elder Holland with violent speech towards people who are, quote, wicked or whatever. Yeah, so I'm going to go back and refer to some sections that we've already talked about, but I'm going to tie them in together. Okay. Sections 101, 103, and 105, they Mm -hmm. all refer to the persecution that the saints are experiencing. It's saying that they're happening because sometimes it's like, oh, it's just from God. And then sometimes it's like, it's from God because it's their fault, right? Because of their transgressions. 98 also says, afflictions shall work together for your good. So all of these ideas put together, these sections are kind of telling us everything's happening for a reason to the saints. Like, Mm -hmm. even though they're being persecuted and their lives are really hard right now, it's happening for a reason. And I thought about the conversation we had on our Instagram recently-ish about if people believe everything happens for a reason or if they don't believe that. Yeah. We did a little poll on our Instagram story, and it was about 80 people that answered the poll. It was surprisingly nice. a lot of people. 75% of people said no, hmm. and 25% of people said yes. That and surprised me. It surprised me, too. I was shocked. I don't know if this was ever taught to me directly at church, but I feel mm. like it's kind of believed by many, I would say most saints, that things happen for a reason. But that's not the case here. And I wonder, I know we had some people answer that are not members of our church. Yes. And some people that answered that are disabled, non-disabled. Like we had a, a good little mix. Of course, it's all people who follow us. So that's pretty limited. But yeah, we gave them the option to kind of explain why they answered the way they answered. And a lot of the answers went into how things just happen randomly sometimes and they're not for a reason. Come Follow Me kind of speaks to this too, but Come Follow Me also supports the idea of like everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, kind of indirectly. Let me just read it really quick. My trials can work together for my good. Some of our afflictions in life are caused by our own choices. Others are caused by the choices of others. And sometimes no one is to blame. Bad things just happen. Regardless of the cause, adversity can help fulfill divine purposes. And then it quotes Doctrine and Covenants 98 and then a section 101. I don't have a lot to say more than that to this section. I just wanted to mention it because I feel like Depending on how you view this question, does everything happen for a reason? It can affect how you act in life. It can affect your mental health and a lot of things. It's saying pretty specifically that the saints were persecuted for a reason when you look at Doctrine and Covenants. But then I look at the persecutions of our day and I would say that it's dangerous to make that big of a generalization that everything that's happening in 2020 and 2021 is because of transgression Mm. or directly from God. Especially when it's marginalized communities that are getting the brunt of all these natural disasters, etc. Because then you're associating wickedness and deserving to be punished with marginalized communities. Right. And that's kind of my fear like the tension that we talked about, how there's like paradoxes in our church and tensions. Mm-hmm. I think that if you go extreme either way, it can be harmful, but there is a good way to look at both and say, okay, yeah, there are some things that are happening right now that are consequences to our own actions as human people. Mm-hmm. Like the condition the earth is in right now, it's because of the actions of humans. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think that it's important to learn about how humans have an effect on the earth and on each other, and to try your best to be accountable for your part of that and not just let your privilege of how it doesn't affect you cloud your eyes on what's going on around you and how it's affecting your community. Yeah, it surprised me that my non-member friends or some people that I know who are not Mormons or affiliated with the church at all, or even really religious, said, yes, everything happens for a reason. I was like, oh, Okay. I suppose I, I, I would just say that, that there's lots of ways you can interpret that. Yeah. More than just like some divine, huge cosmic plan, just that everything has consequences, right? Like that's physics and that's metaphysics, right? 
Oh, we yeah. can't we can't just assume that the things we do don't have consequences. Is it part of some huge plot to save humanity or punish humanity? That's debatable and has large implications, right? But I think we can recognize that our individual actions do make impacts and other people's individual actions make impacts on us. So if that whole like huge mindset is too overwhelming and brings up too many questions, just like scale it down and just think on an individual level, how are things affecting me and how am I affecting other people? Yeah, because then you can actually take the information and use it rather than just be overwhelmed and powerless to the information that you find. Cool. Yeah. This discussion leads me to my final thoughts. So the saints are being persecuted. Uh, They're looking to God. God's telling them to like repent and that they're being chastened. And then in section 103, verse 15, in this revelation, it talks about how the redemption of Zion would come by power. Then also the saints received a parable of a vineyard that was taken from slothful servants, and the vineyard was then destroyed by enemies. And it kind of talks about in section 105, but more so you can read about it in Come Follow Me and in the saints book and in Revelations in Context, actually. So the saints heard these I would say figurative language, this figurative language that's talking about how they would be redeemed. And this led the saints to make the camp of Israel, aka Zion's camp. They created it for the purpose of marching to Missouri to aid in the redemption of Zion. And they got 225 people, 200 men, and then 25 women and children to march with Joseph from Kirtland, Ohio to Jackson County, Missouri to save the saints from persecution. They were armed. They were ready to fight. They were ready to shed blood to save the saints in Missouri. Wow. Also, let me sneak in this part of the story because it's not mentioned in the scriptures, but it is mentioned in these extra additional resources. A black woman, well, let me quote it. About a day's journey from their destination, a black woman, possibly a slave, called out to them nervously, quote, There is a company of men who are calculating to kill you this morning as you pass through, she said. So that warning from this woman protected the saints that were marching in this group. Once they were only miles away from Jackson County, Joseph counseled with church leaders and received a revelation that the Lord accepted the sacrifice that the members were trying to make, but they were redirected when the Lord said, Zion cannot be built up unless it is by the principles of the law of the celestial kingdom. And the saints were told that they needed to be endowed from power on high, referring to the temple that was being built in Kirtland. And the saints took that as like their mission was over. They tried to show sacrifice for the Lord, but it wasn't needed. And a lot of them turned around and went back to help continue building the temple in Kirtland. Okay, now in sharing all this, let's go back and look at the actual words the Lord used that led the saints to create Camp Zion and move to act violently against this mob that were persecuting our people. The Lord said that Zion would be taken back with power. Did the Lord mean gather up an army to fight? I don't think so. We've read many times in the scriptures that all things are spiritual that comes from the Lord. Yeah. And let's remember throughout these sections, it's talking over and over and over about repentance and forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness. The saints are being called to move forward in faith and not act in violence. Now that we have the hindsight and know the end of the story, we also know that the Lord clarified once the saints were there, he said through Joseph, don't fight, go back, go to the temple, receive power from on high. So originally when he said that Zion will be taken back with power, the power he was referring to was the power of the temple, the power of the priesthood, celestial power from on high, not power, force, violence. I believe the saints misinterpreted the Lord's words when they gathered with the clear intent to bring about the Lord's work with violence. 
Now let's go back again to Elder Holland's talk. I know we've referred to it a couple times, but I feel like it applies here too. He may not have intended his violent metaphor to be taken literally, but the impact may and has already been violent against LGBTQ people and their community allies. Is it Elder Holland's responsibility to use a nonviolent metaphor? Considering the fact that saints in the past took strong language to mean bringing about God's work with force, like in the Camp Zion example I shared, and considering the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, which involved members of our church, we see examples of how members of our church can be stirred to violence with violent metaphors and violent wordings. Yeah. When I was thinking about all these connections, two scriptures popped into my mind. The Malachi scripture, where the Lord is promising blessings to those who pay tithing, says, quote, prove me now herewith. And the line throughout the scriptures that shares how the Lord shares with us line upon line. Using these scriptural phrases as a guide, I do not believe Elder Holland's use of a violent metaphor was wise at all. Prove me now herewith, American members of the church have proven to God and our leaders through our actions that we cannot responsibly handle a violent metaphor. We're not in a place overall where we can take all things as spiritual and understand how to spiritually apply these metaphors. With our history, I believe our leaders must be responsible for using nonviolent metaphors if they do intend to protect people, especially marginalized people, from violence. Yeah, I, I thought that was really insightful. <sighs> Maybe, hopefully, our leaders can stop saying violent things over the pulpit or writing them in our scriptures. That'd be nice. Even if people don't act on it literally and are violent, of course, violent language is going to cause violent, like verbal abuse, actions, not accepting people in our wards, like the least harm it could do would be that, which is still a ton of harm. Yeah. If anyone wants to friend me on Facebook, because I'm feeling discouraged about our Facebook presence, honestly. It's a little overwhelming for me to be posting in certain groups about holy human stuff. So if anybody wants to friend me on Facebook and help us share things from Holy Humans page to certain Facebook groups that are supposed to help disabled people in the church, that would be great. Follow us on Facebook and then send us a message and then we'll talk about it in more details then. Facebook.com slash Holy Human Podcast and then Instagram.com. Join the conversation there at Holy Human. That's W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. And email us at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. We also want to thank Mativ for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. Thanks, everyone.